This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladensami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorj, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable Radio, we are honored to be joined by the Honorable Maurice McTeague, QSO, a former cabinet minister and member of parliament in his native New Zealand. The Honorable Maurice McTeague was one of the architects of the New Zealand miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven pro-growth policies. He later became New Zealand's ambassador to Canada and received the prestigious Queen's Service Order in recognition of his public service from Queen Elizabeth II. He is an executive advisory board member of the International Leaders Summit. The Honorable Maurice McTeague was vice president at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. McTeague has testified on Capitol Hill and published articles in many major media outlets. McTeague advised the Office of Management and Budget and most federal agencies on issues of accountability and transparency and has consulted with legislators and governors in more than 30 states. The Honorable Maurice McTeague has delivered keynote addresses at international leaders' summits in the European Parliament in Brussels, cities in Eastern Europe, Washington, D.C., and spoke at the inaugural Jerusalem Leaders' Summit in 2015 and the fourth Jerusalem Leaders' Summit in 2018. And without further ado, we welcome Maurice McTeague to America's Roundtable. Good morning, Maurice. Good morning, Morris. Good morning, and uh, it's wonderful to be speaking to America again um, after being away for two years. Uh, and it's also quite daunting to come home to your own country and find the things that you fixed many years ago got broken again. But that's the story of politics around the world. <laughs> well, we certainly looked forward to delving more into the beginnings of a transformation in New Zealand that you articulated just before we began our recording. And um, at this moment, we'd just like to take uh, a few moments, actually, to reflect on what transpired on October 7, 2023. On that very fateful day in Israel, 1,200 lives were lost, 6,900 injured, 240 individuals taken hostages, including babies and young children, and destruction to homes and communities. And October 7, 2023, saw the most Jews slaughtered in a single day since the Holocaust, and 130 hostages still remain in the hands of Hamas. And... As we look at what is transpiring uh, in Israel today, uh, we are deeply concerned about what is uh, truly happening on the ground uh, with Israel facing such serious challenges. Honorable Maurice McTeague, what is your advice to leaders in Israel and also policymakers in America as there are pressures being placed on Israel 
for a ceasefire and actually to withdraw from Gaza without finishing the job of eliminating this terror group, Hamas. Well, I might come from somewhere else. I might actually talk to people first. So we as people can only really flourish if we can do that in a safe environment. And domestic terrorism is one of the biggest threats that countries face around the world today. So whatever you have to do to quell domestic terrorism is a price that you have to pay to have a free and open society. That's what Israel has faced since 1948, and every now and again it bubbles up. And the rest of the world has not been helpful in trying to find permanent solutions to these problems. In fact, there are many countries around the world who I think use that Israel as an opportunity to ferment that kind of discord between the different religions. Uh, and I applaud the fact that the Israelis have been prepared to build something in Israel that was not there before, uh, something that the rest of the world can look at and say, wow, uh, and at the same time have to provide a safety umbrella that's greater than any other country on earth. So uh, I'm on their side in terms of trying to resolve this problem. Will they get it done permanently? Maybe for some years, but unless there's a major change in attitude among others around the world, I can't see it being a permanent fix. Mm, right. Uh, Maurice, uh, we had a great privilege to have you join us for two Jerusalem Leaders Summit events in Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, we then also visited together Judea and Samaria, which was an eye-opener for many of our partners and friends who were visiting this area for the very first time and realizing the importance for Israel and superior IDF forces, Israeli Defense Forces, to be in charge of defense and security. As we learned about then risk on, of infiltration by ISIS, about Iran's funding of proxies in the region and the proximity of the international airport in Tel Aviv. It is great to see on the New Zealand's foreign affairs website today uh, that New Zealand is condemning unequivocally Hamas 7 October terrorist attacks on Israel and supporting the right of Israel to defend itself against Hamas terrorist attacks. What is interesting is that New Zealand uses the term occupied Palestinian territories. And then we looked at your State Department website. They also use the term, the occupied territories, and they define them, which include the West Bank, which is also known as Judea and Samaria that we visited, East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. Uh, Maurice, in Judea and Samaria, as well as in East Jerusalem, Arabs and Jews live together they work together and study together, and there's no occupation. And Gaza Strip has first a limited authority since Oslo Accords in 1994, and then the full sovereignty since August 2005, when Israel evacuated all its troops and settlers from Gaza. The citizens of Gaza Strip have not had elections since 2006, when Iran-backed Hamas came into power. So, uh, Maurice, shouldn't the Western, and that's following up on what you said, uh, shouldn't the Western rule of law nations lead in exposing the truth and abandoning the term occupied territories because it just misleads the public and perpetuates the problem? Well, I think most of the people that are giving opinions have never been to Israel, have never experienced the things that you're just talking about. 
and that there is a lot of harmony between Palestinians and Israelis. Then if you actually talk about uh, the term occupied uh, and you've ever done any reading, you might have spent an hour or so looking at something called the Bible and you'll find that thousands of years ago, that's where the Jewish people lived and they have lived there um, on and off when, um, over the centuries. Uh, and it was really an, an aberration that they were kept out of Palestine for so long uh, and in 1948 decided to take things into their own hands and go back to their country. So uh, all of those terminologies are really false uh, and it's people making decisions and giving advice when they're not well informed. The second thing really is that if the free nations of the world believe in free people and free enterprise and the right to live your lives um, according to your religious convictions and according to your ethnicity and your culture, then they should be prepared to say, hey, what's going on here is bad. And sporadic terrorist events are things that should never be supported by anyone. Um, but our international organizations are not organizations that you can look at and say, um, here is the epitome of leadership for the world because it's frequently not, mm. uh, and it's frequently not about the things that are most important to us as human beings. So going back to what do we as human beings really require is probably a good thing to do rather than just dreaming up terminologies and making accusations uh, that really can't be substantiated by the truth. Mm. Honorable Maurice McTeague, uh, when you were here in Washington, D.C., we talked a lot about the concerns of immigration reform. And today, what we're experiencing in America is an open southern border. There is no security whatsoever. We're experiencing a national security crisis. And the Wall Street Journal reports that border agents made over 2 million arrests in the federal fiscal year that ended this past year in September, as the new government data shows. And the second year in a row, that figure has exceeded 2 million. In the past, the numbers have risen and fallen based on significant economic and policy changes like recessions and pandemic era border restrictions. But they never exceeded 1.7 million and never stayed at an elevated level as long as they have the past few years, unquote. Earlier this month, House Republicans issued a report that Americans could pay upwards to $451 billion to care for migrants who entered the U.S. illegally, but have been released into the country or escaped from custody. Honorable Maurice McTeague, the cost is certainly unsustainable. What is your message to the Biden administration and mayors of cities that have embraced the concept, the idea, the notion of sanctuary cities, which is hurting American taxpayers in cities such as Chicago, Detroit, and New York, and counties in some 12 states? Well, I might count the costs slightly differently because I think, I think the biggest cost is not in dollars and cents. I think the biggest cost is in the collapse of law and order mm. and a collapse of the institutions who are meant to do that. So if we went back a number of years, maybe you could blame the people who were coming into the country illegally. Um, but for the last 
15 or 20 years or maybe even longer, you can't blame them. You can only blame governments who didn't do what they're elected to do, and that is to keep uh, the sanctuary of their borders uh, and to bring into the country only those people that they choose to bring in, not allow them to just come in um, without any prior vetting or any action by the government. Then, of course, when the laws are broken, not doing anything about it. And um, so every country on earth actually has uh, laws that protect their borders. Most of them do a good job at looking after it. And most of them find that it's not actually a major problem and it's not a major political issue. Uh, I was Minister of Immigration in New Zealand for a period of time. Um, okay, different story, little country with masses of oceans around it, so it's not easy to walk across the border. Accept all that. But we used to get quite a lot of people who would, would overstay when they came to visit, uh, and we had to deal with that. So... As Minister of Immigration, um, I deported about 98.6% of people who overstayed. What then happens is that nobody actually tries yeah. um, because they know there's a consequence. And one of the things that was attached to our immigration policy at that time was that if you had to be deported, then you couldn't come back into the country for any reason for 10 years. Uh, and that was also a major deterrent to people. Okay, you might overstay for a few days or you might overstay for a few weeks, but you leave before you're going to be deported so that you don't have those other penalties that apply. So many, many issues that governments have to deal with, they only work uh, if there's a consequence for bad behaviour. And when there is bad behaviour, you actually have to use that consequence. Right. Uh, Maurice, we always like to get your advice on any economic issues and economy, and your experience is so valuable. America is on an unsustainable path of ever-increasing government spending and continual budget deficit, which are resulting in ever-increasing national debt. According to the U.S. debt clock data, U.S. national debt as a percentage of the U.S. gross domestic product it is at 122% today. According to trading economics, the ratio of government spending to GDP in the United States averaged 25.66% in the period from 1900 until 2022. It came to its high during COVID in 2020 when the ratio was at 47.66%, the record low was 6.5% in 1907. And when we look at the breakdown of government spending today, uh, which is at $9.3 trillion, we realize that the highest spending is generated by Medicare and Medicaid, which is at 16%, Social Security at 15%, Defense at 9%, and interest on debt, 7.5%. So Americans are paying $693 billion this year so far as an interest amount for the government debt incurred. And to put it in perspective, the interest amount on debt that we are paying in America is the entire annual budget for the U.S. Department of Education, of Agriculture and the Department of Transportation combined. Uh, Maurice, from your experience as a legislator and then cabinet minister of the five different ministries, you spearheaded major reforms in New Zealand. 
resulting in the government's share of GDP dropping from 44 to 27% and using budget surpluses to pay down the debt from 63% to 70% of GDP. What would you do in America? How would you go about reducing government spending and debt? My first choice might be to move somewhere else uh, <laughs> okay. because it's a big problem and it's not going to be resolved easily. Uh, one of the encouraging things that, that happened when I came back to New Zealand was to realise uh, that the culture of fiscal responsibility that had been built still existed. Mm. And while with the world um, financial collapse and then later on with the COVID uh, events, uh, government spending has peaked for those events, but there's then come back down to surpluses. And even after COVID and a lot of government spending during COVID, uh, it looks like we should be back into surpluses again somewhere around about 27 or 28, um, 2027 or 28. And both political parties or all political parties accept uh, that the goal has to be that you operate in surplus most of the time. Um, that's pretty darn neat. Mm. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a strategy that any political party in the United States really wants to own. Uh, and you have to start from there. Getting back um, to where you want to be is difficult. Uh, government spending is often driven by um, tiny issues of the day that over time are not really that significant. Uh, one of the strategies that was adopted in New Zealand to try and get on top of government spending uh, was to look at all of the things that government does and first and foremost say, we will stop spending money on things that don't work. That means that you have to identify outcomes. So if we're spending money on homelessness, are we actually reducing the quantity of homelessness or are we not? If we're not reducing the quantity of homelessness, some of the things we're doing are wrong. Mm. So you have to go back and find the right kind of solutions. Uh, government bureaucracies grow like the fable of Topsy. Whenever there's a new issue, government ag agencies find very innovative ways of being able to be included in the new money that's going to be distributed. After 9-11, I helped with some of the... You know, issues around building the Department of Homeland Security. And in the end, what Congress said uh, to the agencies was, um, you fix it, but we want a new Department of Homeland Security. And uh, 22 major departments in the United States federal government, 19 of them found a good reason for why they should be funded under the Homeland Security budget. Hmm. I think probably about seven of them deserve to be, but 19 of them got money. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that lots of different organisations are doing exactly the same thing. If you're serious about spending control, you pick whoever does it best and you give all the money to them and you take it away from everybody else. Mm -hmm. But when you do those things, you have to take away A, the activity, and then all of the infrastructure around it. So the agency or department goes and all of the people um, are made redundant. 
And that process in New Zealand between um, a Labour government and a national government, so a centre-right and a centre-left government uh, in the 80s and the 90s, saw our civil service, the number of people employed by the federal government, dropped by 66%. Mm. And that meant that huge numbers of government departments were just taken out altogether. Why? Because they were really doing things that could be done better in the private sector. So you don't have to have a special agency to check whether or not uh, government cars meet their safety criteria. That can be done by anybody who's a registered mechanic. So that part of the Department of Transport can go. You just set the criteria in and say to mechanics, this is the standard you have to meet, and then the private sector does the work. So if you do that enough times, you find that now we're back to a core government that's doing the things that government should be, guaranteeing the safety of the people, guaranteeing the safety of the country, um, seeing to the essential things that we need to be able to survive. Uh, and then you have a chance of getting on top of spending uh, and um, the growth in government. One of the things that always amazed me in the United States was that you have this ludicrous issue of government um, debt limits that comes up every year. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, oh, yeah. it's really stupid when you think about it in a logical way because having made the decisions to spend X quantity of money, you know at that time that you're going to exceed the debt limit. Why isn't that part of the budget process and resolved at that time? Mainly because the politicians like being able to spend, but they don't like uh, having to be responsible for the debt that's incurred. If you put those two things together, it would disincentivize quite a lot of the spending. That would be a smart thing to do um, and take away from the federal government and the institution of, of the federal government, the embarrassment of year after year having this ridiculous debate that everybody in America, except for the people on Capitol Hill, know is ludicrous and they don't have any attempts at actually solving the problem. Right. I mean, smart and simple <laughs> yes. solution. Yes. Right. Uh, Maurice, uh, under President Trump's leadership, the administration had cut eight and a half regulations for every new rule far exceeding his promise to cut two regulations for every new one. And President Trump understood the importance of deregulation and tax reduction for achieving higher levels of economic growth, employment and personal income growth, which in turn stimulates personal consumption, which is the largest individual contributor to the economic growth. And for example, in its 2018 report, the Council of Economic Advisor estimated that a reform of the Food and Drug Administration's requirements for approving generic drugs had led to FDI approving a record number of generic drugs and new brand name drugs, which will have saved consumers almost 10% on retail prescription drugs, resulting in an increase of $32 billion a year in the purchasing power of the incomes of Americans. Uh, Maurice, in your must-read piece, A Rolling Back Government, Lessons from New Zealand, you shared, and I quote, The regulatory power is customarily delegated to non-elected officials who then constrain the people's liberties with little or no accountability. These regulations are extremely difficult to eliminate once they are in place, 
but we found a way. We simply rewrote the statutes on which they were based. Uh, Maurice, could you kindly share with us about this process and your advice for America? Well, we hear a lot of talk when economies come up for discussion about competitiveness uh, of one economy compared to another. And um, that is, is something that um, really is built around the fact that capital is fungible. It moves wherever it can in the world mm. to get the best return. And what that capital looks at is things like what's your taxing ratio, what's your regulatory regime, like what are your laws like. That is something that needs to be addressed if you're going to remain competitive. Uh, and one of the things that investors want to know is how secure is my investment uh, in terms of how many hurdles am I going to have to jump through to be able to get the investment in, part, in place and start to make a return? Uh, how likely are those things to change? Uh, and if the, that creates uncertainty, then you don't get the investment. All sorts of other things then start to happen. Uh, the growth rate in jobs um, slows down. The remuneration for the workforce slows down. Uh, the innovation slows down. Uh, and in the worst of cases, disappears. Regulations are really a direct attack on the competitiveness of your economy. Uh, and while some of them are necessary, most of them are not. And it's frequently special interests that have been um, applying pressure to the political process uh, to get their particular deal um, authenticated through some kind of regulation. The easiest way to deal with it is um, to actually go back and say, where does this regulation come from? It normally comes from a major statute. How old is that statute? Sometimes 20, 30, 40, and 50 years old. Uh, are the terms and conditions that were prevalent at that time still the terms and conditions that apply today? If not, should we rewrite this? And if you rewrite it to deal with contemporary society today, uh, when you come to the end of the rewriting, you repeal all of the old. When you repeal the old, all of the regulations that depended on that old statute are dead. Uh, so you start from scratch and you write the regulations that are appropriate to your new law. I think that it's illogical and frankly stupid uh, to think that laws or statutes are going to last forever. And like everything else that we do, uh, we have to modernize them as society changes. And doing that on a regular basis, like every 25 or 30 years, would be a really good thing to do and would become part of that natural process. And that would peel back a lot of the power of the bureaucracies who find these particular nicks in the law that they can use uh, to justify something else that they want to do. Uh, and particularly in organisations of the left, they ultimately have a worldview that's built around one world government where everything's decided by the bureaucrats because then the smartest people will be making all the decisions. No evidence that that's ever worked anywhere, but that's where it comes from. So bureaucracies like expanding regulatory regimes because more and more of the power moves to them uh, and away from the elected process. Many politicians like that too because the the criticism that might 
come from making some of these decisions uh, then is avoided by them because they say, no, no, that's not what we did. We passed the, the, uh, the law, but the regulation was done by the bureaucrats. A bit more courage would be nice. Mm -hmm. right. um, and the application of that courage of making hard decisions would be really good. <laughs> right. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you, Mr. Maurice McTeague, for joining us from New Zealand. He was the former cabinet minister and member of parliament in his native New Zealand and serves on the executive advisory board of the International Leaders Summit. Thank you, Mr. McTeague, for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you so much, Mr. McTeague. Thank you very much. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you again and really enjoyed having the chance to talk with people in America again. Wonderful. We look forward to having you soon back on America's Roundtable. Okay. Have a great Christmas. <laughs> yes, indeed. A Merry Christmas Merry to you Christmas all. Merry Christmas to you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at America's RT. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 